Welcome to the Senia Happy Hour Podcast with your host, Lori Bull. We know you're busy, so we bring you one hour's worth of content in under 30 minutes, leaving you time for a true happy hour. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Happy Hour. Today, I speak with Anita Churchville, who is an educational consultant and founder of the HAGT Learners Collaborative. She currently coordinates the High Ability Program at the American School of Bombay and conducts professional development workshops, courses, and ongoing coaching at a number of private international schools with European and American curricula. She previously created and coordinated special and gifted programs at the American School of Doha and at Academia Cotopaxi. She also worked as a program specialist in the LA Unified School District in California, supporting 16 schools. Anita has published writing, which includes the three E's of authentic parent partnerships for gifted students and ability grouping does not equal tracking. Anita serves as a New England Association of Schools and Colleges Accreditation School Visitor and as a professional mentor for the Association of International Educators and Leaders of Color. Anita and I had a great conversation about gifted programs in international schools, and I think you're really going to enjoy it. So now, on to the show. Hello, Anita, and welcome to Happy Hour and to the podcast. Hi, Lori. I'm so excited to be here. Well, I'm excited, too. You were one of our presenters at um, our Senya Africa conference, and everyone loved your your work, oh. and so we thought we have to get you on here and learn um, more so from you. Thank you. It's such an honor to be here. It was such a great experience, and uh, it was great to see that Senya was adding some of these not so much spoken about conversations to their docket. So I was really excited to see that this year. Yeah, cool. Well, and also you'll be presenting at our virtual conference. So, so yes. people can sign up soon and learn more from you even there. So awesome. right now you're the high ability program coordinator at the American school of Bombay. Um, right. You have another job as well, which we'll talk about soon, but um, and it, it just sounds like a really interesting position. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little more about your program and then like how it started, why your school found a need for it. And then we'll get into the details of the program. Sure. Love to share that. So before I was hired, they did a lot of strategic planning to think about what were some of the unmet needs, what were, what should be a new direction for their planning. And one area after they looked at data um, was that they were seeing that the highly that some a small group of kids were not really experiencing growth and they were looking at scores they were looking at student and parent satisfaction and there was just this group of students that was not thriving in the way that typically students thrive at the school so they did sort of a deep dive and decided that um, there were kids who were sort of at the top end of performance of ability whatever you want to call it um, that they weren't necessarily serving as well as they wanted to and so part of their um, one of their outcomes was to hire a coordinator to sort of look at these needs um, see how we could individualize they wanted to think about personalized learning a little bit more and this was a place to start so that was sort of the, the origin of my position cool and your school is pretty inclusive isn't it yes yes, yes. 
And I actually came on as the high ability program coordinator for secondary and the learning support coordinator. So I was working um, interventions, special needs, EAL, counseling. So it was a really interesting team to work with to kind of pull all those things together in an inclusive way. Right. That's great. And, you know, many people might not understand why we would be having someone who teaches high ability uh, students on Arsenia podcast. So can you explain the connection (laughs) there? Sure. Well, certainly, um, and I I talked about this with you before we we got into this, but I've always seen inclusion um, from my background in California, getting my master's and my teaching credential. We talked about exceptionalities. So there wasn't a gifted bucket and a special ed bucket. Um, It was certainly who are the students on the margins that may need something different. And we also found under that umbrella, a lot of kids who were twice exceptional. And that's one of the most misunderstood uh, profile of a student. And it could come out, I don't know how deep you wanna get into this part, but it could look like an average student or an uninterested student. And really the giftedness may be masking the disability or the disability may be covering up the giftedness. Mm -hmm. And so it's really an area that hasn't been explored very well. And I think um, special educators listening to this probably know some students that they're like, oh, maybe that's this kid. Right. (laughs) So I think there's such a a tie-in. And in really thinking about how do we serve kids in, in a personalized way, really identifying strengths and weaknesses, and even staying a little bit away from some of the labels. Right. Because if you have to look at a twice exceptional kid, you are looking at some jagged profiles there that you really have to drill down into like, what can they do and what are they struggling with? Mm-hmm. And it kind of goes along with our theme from Senya Africa, which was beyond the label. Beyond so the label. That's right. Let's That's just right. work with the kid. Yes. <laughs> Who do you have in front of you? Let's support our kid to no matter what that label is. So Yes. All right. Well, let's dig in a little bit. Uh, Tell me, how do you collaborate with teachers, parents, counselors, and other stakeholders to create a supportive and enriching environment for your 2E and gifted students there? One of the main approaches I've used is really thinking about um, giving a place for people to talk about what they're feeling and thinking and what their understanding is. I think a lot of times educators don't feel heard. They may feel overburdened um, with supporting the kids they already have. Parents may feel that they've been trying to express the needs of their students um, and not fully being heard. And so, um, and sometimes principals and directors don't really have a clear understanding. So what I found as is a really effective approach is a lot of listening and then figuring out what education needs to happen. So professional development workshops, parent meetings, I always hold parent workshops. I feel like that's a really key piece. Um, even in training parents, how do you approach the school? And I work with directors and principals and say, how do you meet with parents? And how do you understand what their needs are? Um, and certainly, of course, students are a part of that process, but the stakeholders, I think, and FESI counselors, I think about that group, because there are a lot of social and emotional needs that come out of both gifted, twice exceptional, even, of course, of students with learning disabilities and other learning differences, um, and really helping people understand what are the different profiles that not all kids, because they have a, a quote unquote, you know, a label of something means that they are going to present with these characteristics. Um, I think about 
in the early days of our school, when we were just starting talking about inclusion, um, the idea was every, the label was just, that's an ILS student, like an individualized learning services student. And that was whether they had ADHD, whether they were on a modified program, they were all lumped into the same category. And really parsing that out and really differentiating was a really key piece in helping the school move forward, I think. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. What can educators do to increase their capacity for understanding and addressing the needs of gifted and 2E learners in their Mm -hmm. classrooms? Well, of course, a really quick, simple answer to start with is really seeking out professional development opportunities Mm -hmm. and really getting into some of the research. I think about schools, and we did this at our school. In fact, I I hosted a professional learning community where we looked into research, where we looked at stories and we talked about understandings and and looked at different cases. Just sort of increasing awareness um, is a start. And then looking at the students that you have in your classroom. Uh, One of the the tools that we use is, is classroom checklists. So you may not be labeling a child, of course, but you're looking at, okay, what do I even see in the classroom? And what I think might be a behavior difficulty might be a disability, might be giftedness, might be twice exceptionality, Mm -hmm. and sort of asking more questions instead of assuming um, that something specific is going on in the classroom. And of course, looking at different um, technological approaches, really looking at, um, you know, what are the interests of the students, and then finding out background information, sorry, not background information, finding out resources that can support those interests that the students have. And that kind of expands a bit your understanding of each individual student. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is just so important. All of our students, right? Are the checklists for every student in the classroom? Yes, that's the thing. uh, The checklist is you look at, you don't even think who has an issue or who has some gift. You're really looking at who do I have this year? And these, there are some questions there and you kind of jot down the students that come to mind uh, based on these questions. And then you start to think, oh, there may be something here that I have to do a deep dive into some data. And that's ask great. That's great. Uh, so many times teachers don't get that time and that mm-hmm. that opportunity to do something like that. So it sounds like your school really focuses on the importance of it and gives gives them the opportunity to work on it. So. It's tough at every school, and I think finding it. Of course, it's easier in some divisions than other others. Mm-hmm. But having that, at least that we used to have a thing called Power PLCs, which I thought were fantastic in middle school, where you looked at articulation, let's say between sixth through eighth, at in just the English department or the math department, and really looking deeply into research and problems of practice, and it wasn't just. Um, discussing what the curriculum was going to look like you know it was really deep dive and i thought it was such it was so useful and i would go and do you know presentations in those groups and to help those teachers really increase their awareness of what might be going on in their classroom so that was a really space that was provided for them yeah what resources or strategies do you recommend to other educators or program coordinators who are interested in incorporating kids with 2e giftedness into their learning support programs So I think about that in kind of a two-pronged approach. One is, I think, one of the great things about inclusion, I'm putting that in quotes, happening earlier than twice exceptionality, gifted education thinking in international schools especially, 
is that you are a lot of schools already have support personnel in place. They've got people who are trained in special education needs. They've got personalized plans for students. So that thinking is already there. There's already at least a baseline of training for thinking about the margins, thinking about exceptionalities. And so the one piece of that two-pronged approach that I'm thinking of is just adding some training for the people who already know how to think in that personalized way to just look at what are some characteristics of those who are gifted. What does a twice exceptional learner look like? Maybe you have someone in your program who's been diagnosed with a specific learning disability, but they have an amazing capacity to reason and to, to critically think and to express themselves verbally. So that may be something to dig into. Um, so that's one piece is just adding training and using your existing personnel and their strengths already to just be focusing on this group of students. And then the second prong is really looking at, okay, what do the students need individually? Um, and one of the things that I've, if I could, if everybody walks away with just this, <laughs> if you have a twice exceptional student to focus on the strengths, not on the deficits, uh, that's yes. one of the biggest frustrations for twice exceptional students with twice exceptionalities, because that's the piece that gets the learning support. That's the piece mm -hmm. that gets all the intervention and the pullout programs and the, we need more testing in this and they can feel that frustration of not being seen. And mm -hmm. so I think that's the, the second prong. And of course, some of the, the strategies and resources are flexible groupings. Um, I think about, I'm, I'm picturing a student right now, amazingly gifted child who had dyslexia. And for years, no one saw the giftedness. Right. And I met her in elementary and I was like, whoa. And they're like, oh, she's got dyslexia. She needs all the support. And I'm like, have you ever had a conversation with this girl? Like she's amazing. She's thinking at such a high level. And so thinking about, okay, can she go in the high reading group and right. have the high level conversations? Cause she understands it. The decoding is going to take some time, right? But the actual high level thinking, she is a great fit for her. So that was a shift of not just skill groupings, but mm -hmm. some flexible groupings based on um areas of strengths um and areas maybe for skill development that are needed but not just the deficits they can yeah. get super discouraged with that sure yeah and just what a, a great way to look at it and just acknowledging for that student empowering that student to have those conversations despite not being able to decode it you know just being able exactly. to talk about what they learned through the uh, audiobook or how it, whatever approach they took to exactly. you know, access that book. Challenges. What challenges have you faced in promoting inclusive practices? <laughs> what do you mean challenges? There are no challenges in education. <laughs> None. <laughs> None. <laughs> oh, gosh. Okay. It's been a long journey. I will say that I have learned a lot um, about how to approach educators in a different way than I did perhaps at the beginning of my career. Mm -hmm. um, Haven't we all? Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you can relate. Yeah. Um, I used to go in and say, okay, this is what the student needs. This is who the student is. This is what we need to do. And that did not work so well. So that was definitely a challenge. And I, as I dug in more, I realized, okay, Sometimes going in to support a teacher may result in a teacher feeling that they are being questioned about their professionalism or that somehow they're not meeting a student's need. 
Um, in fact, when I first started at ASB, there were some people who were like, why are you here? Are you yeah. trying to say we're not doing a great job supporting our students? We support all students. So getting past that initial like, nope, this is not a judgment about anybody. It's certainly about taking perhaps a limited amount of time uh, or a temporary uh, chunk of time to say, let's focus on this group and identify where we can serve them better. Right. Um, that was a big challenge, um, certainly in my career, but in, in trying to get people on board. But I think when I drill down and think about part of that is the fear. Um, and, you know, as teachers, we all have an ego, right? I mean, it's sure. our classroom, the disseminators of information. And so kind of helping people to step back a bit and focus on the student needs and not take it personally and and really just addressing their fears, addressing their understandings and having a safe space for them to talk about it. I think about even the word gifted is like a dirty word in education, yeah, yeah. right? It's mm -hmm. okay if it's a gifted athlete or a gifted musician or, right, they'll build a new stadium to really support <laughs> right? the, the, the strengths and, and uh, prowess of their athletes. But if you talk about intellectual giftedness, people get very viscerally um, opposed to that. And so that just really sort of dismantling some of the myths that people have and the biases but not just sort of attacking them for them, but right. really saying, okay, let's talk about this. Did you have a pushy parent that's in the back of your mind that really bothered you in your career? Did, were you never in the gifted program and your friend was, and that felt discouraging? So there are so many things that people come yeah. to the table with. Um, and I, I think it's been really important um, as I've developed my programs and, and, and my own professionalism to make sure there's a safe space to say, I understand there are biases, let's address them. Let's talk yeah. about the fears. You don't know what to do once you identify, no problem, right? Really getting out those uh, mis and misunderstandings. So I think uh, that's a pretty big place yeah, to start. Yeah, yeah. It's funny, I just having that conversation just it, it triggered back when I was in elementary school and watching the kids get pulled out to be assessed for the gifted program. And I was like, why am I not getting pulled out? <laughs> <You know? laughs> I am much brighter than Susie. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And then later on, I talked to my parents and they said, oh yeah, they, they wanted to um, test you for that. And we wouldn't let them because we didn't want you to be labeled. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's so funny. <laughs> Fast forward to setting up beyond the label. <laughs> yeah, I know. Isn't that so interesting? But yeah, 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 it 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 does definitely have those biases definitely occur at times when you're not even aware, you know. Yeah, it's true. And yeah. and then helping people to not and giving them that chance to kind of talk it through, but then saying, okay, as professionals, we do have to look at what the research says. We right. do have to look at the students in your class. Mm -hmm. That's okay, right? We can't just say like, no, it's a bad idea to have this program. Right, right. Can I add one other piece to that that I was thinking about? Of course. Um, okay, as a challenge, I, I think one of the biggest challenges is helping people to understand that the main reason for having programs or having some way to address um, this profile of a student is, is really, in my view over the years, the social and emotional piece. And that I think is is really overlooked or not understood. It's definitely mm -hmm. like, oh, you want to accelerate the kids, you want them to skip grades, start college early, be the smartest kid, have the most opportunities for college. And um, 
I understand that some programs may operate like that, but in my experience, the passion that I built for it really came out of seeing kid after kid um, with some pretty intense social and emotional issues that were connected mm. to this and yeah. really just understanding that profile and addressing needs based on that understanding. Yeah. Yeah. So important. Well, tell me some success stories or positive outcomes that you've had um, or that you've witnessed as a result of incorporating kids with disabilities into your um, your HA, which please explain that, uh, gifted programs. So HA is just sort of an umbrella term. There's no perfect term for any of these programs, but like highly right. able. I know the, a, a new term that's come out recently is highly capable, but that's just as bad. I mean, yes. they're all terrible terms. Um, and, but initially the school wanted to call it the high achievers program. And oh. I was like, absolutely not. That's no. awful because it just paints you into a box and you could mm. only address kids with a high score and high performance, right? Not right. even just intellect. So anyway, that, that was a change I insisted on coming in, <laughs> but I think there's a student that comes to mind. Um, and this is when I started, um, there was an enrichment class for seventh and eighth graders. And it was basically you can come up with any project you want and there were only two requirements that you consult with an expert um, and that you conduct research new research on this topic and we always did like a you know a, a showcase at the end and we opened it up for applications for any kid to apply for it for for one year just to, it was a prototype program mm -hmm. and i remember interviewing a student who was would never have shown up on my radar to be in the program. The score would never be higher than maybe a 70th percentile, right? In any area. This kid is a gifted musician, would listen mm -hmm. to a song on YouTube and reproduce it on the tabla, on the piano, instantly, perfectly. Wow. Like un with no training, like unbelievable level. And so um, after I interviewed him, I was like, he had, a, you know, they had to talk about their project ideas. And I was like, okay. And I talked to his music teachers because they had to do a reference. And the music teachers, I will name no names, um, were like, <laughs> no, he should not be in that program. And I was like, what? And they were like, he refuses to learn how to read music, oh. how to read notes. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? So this kid is somebody who came up for the learning support program. So it was like, well, certainly not the gifted program, not the HA program. Right. But we saw this gift in music. And it was so interesting because, of course, the disability, I'm sure, was connected to the inability or the difficulty in reading music or learning sure. that sort of mathematical way of doing things. Um, but I went ahead and accepted the kid into the program. And to see Lori, oh, my gosh. All the behavior issues, all the teachers complained about, we never saw them in that class. Of course. He was obsessed with his project and he came up with this amazing project where he was, he did the sounds of the school. So oh. he went and listened to all, like the sound of the swiping your, your um, ID and the counselor calling for kids to go to class, right? All these little sounds and he put together amazing music from that. Wow. Like it was insane. And to watch his self-confidence and his just autonomy and his ability to advocate for himself and dig into the research, it was unbelievable to see his progress. That That's one of the kids that stands out the most to me. And I'm so glad we, we did that prototype piece of like, okay, can we open this up to kids who don't 
fall into my program easily. Right. So that was a really nice it's experience. Fascinating. Yeah, and, it really was. And why, if you can reproduce music, why would you need to read music? <laughs> Thank you. Great question. Right. We can really perseverate on these. Like we've got a special way that learning must happen. And I was like, this kid is going to be known all over the world. Like he's right. really going to be famous. It's okay. You know, <laughs> that he doesn't read music in your class <laughs> in grade seven. I think we're good. So. Oh, wow. Interesting wow. One. <laughs> yes. Well, before I get into my last question about your future goals or visions, please tell me about your other job. Oh, okay. So I'm an educational consultant and I founded a, a company called the High Ability Gifted and Talented Learners Collaborative. And it's really just a space for international teachers to get professional development. We offer a bunch of courses for school leaders, for teachers, anyone interested in sort of upping their professional learning game when it comes to this profile of student. Um, we, we have an annual summit uh, for educators called the Challenge for All Summit, and that happens yes. usually the first weekend in February. And that's such a great time for collaboration, people coming together with job alike, you know, backgrounds and really just like trying to say, what are you guys doing at your school? Okay, what's working? And we provide a lot of resources and, and support and learning and also are connecting these professionals so they can um, kind of get on the same page about what we can offer as international schools and also oh, see what some of the challenges are. Yeah. Um, and I also do school audits if they want their programs to be reviewed. I do coaching for teachers and staff. I run workshops. So kind of a, a combo of all of those things. Cool, cool. It sounds it sounds great. And I'm glad that it's that. the focus it. is pretty much on international schools because yes, you know, yes. It's hard when international schools are lumped in PD um that's generally focused in only the US or only the UK or Australia or somewhere. So uh exactly. that's really helpful. All right. Last oh yeah, sorry. go on. Go on. No, I think about how even a lot of our programs that we purchase for our mm -hmm. schools are US centric. Sure. And so they're looking at kids who are in Title I programs where they're getting free lunch and mm -hmm. kids in poverty and kids, you know, from all these different backgrounds that don't have as many opportunities. And we have a, quite a different profile of kid internationally. Yeah. And so there's a lot of focus on what does it look like to scaffold education or make um, education accessible to a certain kind of student. So I think there are different challenges in both and nobody really addresses what's going on with third culture kids and right. kids who speak multiple languages and maybe the nanny is raising them. There's mm -hmm. a whole different scenario that needs to be taken into consideration. Yeah, for sure. All right, final question. All right. Future goals. What are your oh, future gosh. goals or visions do you have for your gifted programs? And how do you plan to continue providing meaningful and challenging experiences for students in the years to come? I think if schools can get on board with this concept of personalized learning, mm -hmm. that that's my biggest vision is really, and I know we say that a lot, and that's probably in everybody's school mission and vision somewhere written, um, but there really is a whole lot of 1950s education still going on, mm -hmm. right? Even though we, we've made pods in our classrooms and put some like flexible chairs and all that, 
the learning can really be similar to, you know, the an old style of like prepare for these tests. It's just called the IB now. You right. know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> but really looking at what are students interested in and what kinds of projects do they want to create and how can we help them? And when you talked about the meaningful learning experiences, we we know now that we we have to prepare for futures we can't tell the kids this is what the future will look like right and so giving them opportunities to know how do you conduct meaningful research and what do you do when the research is not there and you have to create something new mm -hmm. um and just really giving kids at all levels with whatever their background is or whatever their profile to really learn how to think in a different way learn how to compensate for any kinds of difficulties that they may have in learning. Um, and, and lots of opportunities for collaboration, for individualizing things. I know our new focus is let's all collaborate. Sometimes that's great. And sometimes we do need to individualize and let people work alone, Yeah. right? Or choose a partner. Um, I think another vision of mine is to provide a lot more support for um, students' social and emotional needs managing and this is not just for gifted or twice exceptional but really learning how to manage stress how to build resilience many of our students um not so much the twice exceptional i would say but definitely gifted students never learned how to face an obstacle and overcome mm -hmm. learning comes mm. easily to them they always get the top score the teacher may not push them they're like okay you're good you've mastered the standard let's focus on someone else so they don't know what it means to fail Right. They don't know what it means to ask for help, to study well. They don't learn those skills. And so I, I think just making sure that we provide those strategies along with the environment in which those strategies matter. Mm. I can't teach a kid how to be resilient if they're in an easy curriculum class. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Who cares? I've always loved the concept of individualized pathways. You know, I, I don't know if you, you know, Todd Rose is the end of average. Right. Yes. Um, and one of the concepts he talks about is the pathways principle, where there are so many different ways to get to the end of, you know, the goal. And I think we get stuck in like kids have to go through A, B, C, you know, through Z. That's what providing, we're providing them and then we can send them off. But I think it's OK to let kids explore, to figure out their strengths, to give them lots of opportunities to to do some meaningful learning about things that are that are important to them about yeah. the world that may not be important to us. Yeah, that, that's the key word right there, right? <laughs> May not be important to us. <laughs> Brilliant. All right, Anita, thank you so much. We will see you at the virtual conference. Super awesome. excited to have you. Thank you so much for having me on. This was fun. I could talk about this stuff all day. So I always appreciate a chance to, to talk about this kind of a profile of kids. So thank you so much. Thank you for joining us for today's show. For more information, including how to subscribe and show notes, please head to our website. That's seniainternational.org slash podcasts. Until next time, cheers.